there, kids, and welcome once again to the Everyday Missionary Podcast. This is episode 243, and today's episode is all about the gospel, all right? So there is that famous word, the good news of Jesus, the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's about that particular idea, but the challenge I have for you in this is this question. Is your gospel big enough? All right, that's the question of the day. Or maybe to put it differently, do you see the gospel, but in a way that is a bit too narrow, too small, not all-encompassing, doesn't touch all the areas that Jesus himself desires to really uh, graft into and transform through the power of the gospel? Now, I bring this up in the podcast for a whole host of reasons, right? So, as uh, I've been kind of keeping up with the news the last few weeks, and again, we had another shooting yesterday at a hospital, and then we had the shooting last week in a school, and we see all of the different social tensions and the different parties that are clashing and the problems in the church and the problems in the world, and and then I start to hear these cliche kinds of things coming out from Christians and from non-Christians, and then all the more it makes me think as a Christian what my worldview is, and then what shapes my worldview, and then how the gospel informs all of that. So it's a cluster going on in my brain all simultaneously, and so I figured I would do a little bit of the podcast today on this idea of the gospel and what the gospel is designed to touch and to do, and from that, maybe we begin to realize how much more is at stake and how much more is in play and how much more we should be uh, integrated into and grafted into all the different nooks and crannies of the world with the gospel in mind as we do it. So this is going to go to a lot of different places. I'm going to try to highlight a number of different things. I don't fully know where the journey is going to take us, which is always fun. Like I am on the ride with you as you are listening in real time, figuring out what's going to come next from Matt's mouth. So is Matt. That's an exciting prospect. Now, Let's see if I can back this up a little bit for just a second. I'm going to give some framework here a little bit. And I want to start just with that idea of the gospel, or it gets translated as good news. Uh, My question for you right off the bat is, what is the gospel? I want you to take a moment to kind of soak in your own thoughts. And if somebody said, can you tell me what the gospel is, what would your answer be? What would you tell people is the gospel? Why don't you think about that for for just a moment? I'm going to let you even kind of be in the silence of your car or your headphones or watching this online, which then you can see me. If you're one of the few that watch this stuff, you're like, well, he's just looking at the screen, pausing. All right, hopefully you have some sense of what the gospel is. Now, uh, here's where I want to take you. In the New Testament, this word gospel or good news uh, is the Greek word Ooengaleon, Ooengaleon. So if you drop that at a cocktail party, you're going to be fancy, all right? So the word Ooengaleon, which means good news or gospel, it's where we get the word evangelism, uh, evangelistic, evangelical, all come from this Greek word Ooengaleon. Uh, if you see it spelled, it starts with an E, even though it sounds like ooh, it starts with an E. It has this gamma nasal in there, this whole thing. So anyway, uh, this idea is a pre-Bible idea. So the 
the Bible didn't come up with the word gospel, nor good news, or uangaleon. This is an old term that was used in that culture for when a general or a leader would go into combat in some location, and then the the forces would be out front, the leader would be back behind, a rider would come from the front to tell the leader, Uengaleon, good news, the victory goes well, or we have defeated, we've conquered, we've won, we're pushing them back, whatever it is. That was kind of the idea of this word, right? And so we want to remember that when we read these words in the Bible, they have reference outside of the Bible, and the Bible reader or the hearer of the day would hear this word and make associations with it that then were were kind of in light of Jesus getting newer, deeper associations, but they were still rooted in the former thing, right? So in this sense, when we think about the good news or the gospel of Jesus, we're thinking about a victory that has been won, right? So some defi- decisive impact that was made that changes everything or turns the tide in a conflict and moves things from one thing to another thing. And and so in the context of the New Testament, the good news was the victory that the kingdom was at hand, the kingdom was emerging into the world, the values of the kingdom were the new way in which we would see the, the forces of darkness. And I'm going to put that in air quotes here because, again, uh, I want to be clear that the forces of darkness span many different things, everything from people that we associate with to things we can't even see, right? But the whole idea is that this this advancing victory of Jesus and kingdom was now in, infiltrating the world and is going to be tra- bring transformation and change based on the way that he says to advance the kingdom and the agenda of the kingdom. So this goes back to all the upside down and backward stuff that Jesus says to do. This is how the the victory of the gospel then proceeds. And so where the old school way of doing it was kill your enemy, defeat your enemy, thwart your enemy, oppose your enemy. Now Jesus is saying, no, 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 we don't do it that way. Rather, we love our enemy. We do good to our enemy. We pray for our enemy. Used to be you punch somebody in the face, but now you turn the other cheek when you get punched in the face. It used to be that you tell people to pound sand when they tell you what to do, but now I'm telling you go twice as far as you would have normally gone and and twice as far far as even you're required to go uh, to really do things differently. So Jesus upends the whole thing and says, I have produced victory in this world. Uh, Now you need to go live in the scope of that victory and drive that victory forward through this gospel and kingdom combination that authentically changes things. Now, to do that takes great faith. I'll, I'll be honest. Like the thing I dig about Jesus is that it so demands faith to do all that stuff that he tells us to do, right? To deal with the log in our own eye more than worrying about the planks in my liberal friend's eye or the lost world's eye. Like it's way easier to judge the world and then see myself as morally better. But Jesus is like, no, we don't play that way, man. Listen, Skippy, you need to do it different. You need to realize that you'll be measured by the same grace that you show. You'll be measured by the mercy that you bestow on others. You're going to be measured by the way that you love this world and did you love it as I loved it or did you back that off for your own agenda or whatever else there's all kinds of stuff about this in the sermon on the plane in particular in Luke chapter 6 right so uh, he's got marching orders because he's accomplished a victory and here's the thing I want to talk about then in light of this idea of the the good news being victory uh, in the world it's meant to touch all things In other words, what we want to understand when you think about how would you define the gospel if you said, well, the gospel is that Jesus died for our sins and rose from the grave so that whoever believes in him would be saved, I would say that is a piece of the gospel. You've got the 
evangelical center point of the gospel, but you may not have in that the full scope of the gospel. Here's what I'm getting at with this. We sometimes in evangelicalism, we reduce this all down to the saving of souls, right? If like nothing else matters but to save souls. And if we accomplish that one goal, we've accomplished all the goals. Now, I want to be clear. I'm a fan. I'm a big fan of seeing souls saved through the gospel. But if we go, oh, mission accomplished, dust off our hands and that's it, then we're not reading the full scope of what this is all about or what Jesus has come to do. Because Jesus didn't just simply come to reconcile people to God, but rather he's come to reconcile, ready? All things. All things, right? See, one of the things we have to understand is that if sin has affected the world, sin doesn't just affect the person. Sin affects all sorts of things. And if Jesus came to the world to defeat Satan, sin, and death, right, those three things, then that touches all things, right? Everything dies. Animals die. Plants die. Entropy happens. And therefore, if Jesus came to defeat death, it's not just the death of people, but it's the death of death, the death that brings all things in the universe, the death that is felt by all things in the universe. He's come to conquer that death too. So suddenly the good news isn't just he saves you from your death. He saves everything from death. Suddenly the good news of Jesus is much bigger than just human beings. We also know that our sin affects all the systems of this world, right? It affects monetary systems and political systems and social systems and educational systems, marital systems, parental systems. Sin is all over the place to be found. And to be clear, I want to be like kind of particular on what I mean by sin. Sin is to miss the mark of the standard of its its perfection, or maybe perfection is not the right word, but like if there is an optimal way that things should be done where there is justice and equity and purity, all of that mixed in there, and anything below that, that is sin. It doesn't always have to be mean and barbed and calling something a sinful thing as though we're saying it's an ugly thing. That can be very, very true. But sin is simply to miss the mark, to uh, step over a line that was established, to not hit the 100% on whatever the thing is. And we know that all sorts of systems, churches and businesses and friendships, they're all affected by sin. So if Jesus came to conquer sin and Jesus came to conquer death, then all of this idea of gospel is much bigger. He's having a victory over all of those things. And the reason this is important to me is, again, I was thinking over the last couple of weeks, uh, you know, it took like two days before there was the gun debate after the school shooting. And, you know, is, you know, is it guns that are at fault or is it the, 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 the evil that's in people's hearts that are at fault? And, and, you know, typically the more gun supporting kind of tribe and and to be clear, uh, I have more guns than there are entities in my home that have heartbeats. All right. And that includes animals. So if somebody's like, he's just anti-gun. No, I'm just anti-dumb. And uh, with that, I sometimes go, we on the side that has firearms, we can be a little silly in the statements we make. They sound like platitudes without empathy or whatever else. And so I was listening to these things where it's like, it's just the evil in people's hearts. The problem isn't the firearm and everything else. And I go, that just decides that the sin involved in this whole discussion is only the sin of the heart of the person that uses the firearm. And it doesn't weigh out, you know, again, 
the, the marketing practices of manufacturers. It doesn't weigh out the celebration of things in Hollywood or video games. It doesn't weigh out whether having an amendment that celebrates firearms may bake something into our cake that has a negative side as well as a positive side because for many ideologies and ideas that are positive, there is a dark underbelly to those ideas as well. We see that in free market ideas and everything else. You, you need greed in the equation at times for it to fully work and therefore there is a dark underbelly even though the free market provides a lot of opportunity and a lot of advancement and a lot of kind of doors that are open to people for all sorts of good things. There's also a bad thing in there. And then it just reminds me then that the gospel is meant to touch all those areas and we're to have gospel thinking so that we're redeeming not just the souls of people, but we also want to be a part of the quest of redeeming the soul of our society. We want to be a part of the quest of redeeming the soul of economics or of business or of entertainment or whatever else. Like all those things apply. And I believe that Jesus is wanting to speak into and, and really bring restoration, bring redemption to all those things. And I'm not just saying that because I have a certain weird theology system called postmillennialism, which maybe I'll get into that in a second. But I'm saying that because when I read the New Testament, I see this emphasis on all things. And so I'm going to read some passages to you right now to give you a sense of the all things, right? So in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 20, it talks about Jesus and it says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, Right. So, so remember back in Genesis, right, where God's like, I'm going to make this thing and it's going to be good, 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 very good. And then he rests, he comes to rest uh, in that space on the seventh day to be in it and with it. And he walks with the man and the woman in the garden in the cool of the day. And there's relationship and continuity and everything else. Like all the things that he made were good. All those things that he made were made through him and by him and for him. And that's exactly what it goes on to say for by him, by Christ, actually, all things were created in heaven and earth visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And it is before him, all things hold together, right? So, so suddenly you got to want to remember that all things means all things, right? Now let's veer this out a little bit into Romans chapter eight. He says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits eagerly with longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself would be set free from the bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, right? Not just creation, but ourselves. So let's bolt these together for a second right? When our world went off the rails, right? In like Genesis chapter three and sin and death entered the equation, uh, that has an ontological rooting, not just simply a practical rooting. Now, I know some of you are like, okay, ontological, what is that? Fancy word for its essence or its being, right? So the ontological idea here is that the, the essence or being of creation then had sin and death built into the equation and not just people, but all the systems became sinful. Now, certainly a lot of the systems are sinful because people run systems, people work in systems, they bring their sinfulness to the system, which only makes the system more problematic at times. It can also run efficiently in a lot of ways, but sometimes even the efficiency is driven by 
greed or want or pressure or guilt or shame or or overworking or any number of sinful things can make systems run efficiently or be productive in some way or make money, and yet they still have sin that are operating in the systems. But the whole of creation was then affected in some way by sin and death, right? And so from this idea of being, it went from being fully alive to having this decay of death. Humans have it. Creation has it. Now, creation didn't even want to get involved in this. Like, that's Paul's point. Like, it it didn't do it saying, yeah, we'll raise our hand. We're going to go ahead and, hey, Eve, when you're done with that fruit with your guy, how about you give us a hunk and we're going to go ahead and eat it as creation. Like, creation's like, man, you guys, you burned down the house. This is on you. You guys just had too many, like, plugs into the power strip and it's your fault, right? But all of creation is affected by this. But in this, if Jesus then is overall made all and then all was broken because of sin, then Jesus comes to restore all things. In fact, going back into Colossians, right? And it says, not only is he the firstborn of the dead and he's doing all of the creating of all things and making of all things and all things in him consist. It says, but also in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So back to the question, what is the gospel? And if you said the gospel is Jesus died on the cross to save sinners so they could have a relationship with him, I go fractionally true, but not fully true. In other words, that part is a true statement, but what does it say? To reconcile to himself all things. All things in Greek just means all things. He wants to reconcile all things. And so not just the soul of the sinner, but the context in which we live in, right? He made the earth good and very good over those days of creation. And then from that, he's like, man, it's broken. And I want to reconcile all of that. And not just like, oh, oh, so the trees and the dirt and rocks that will eventually cry out maybe if we don't do it and everything else. No, it's again, all of the systems, all of the things. See, let me take you back to that weird theology system that I believe in called postmillennialism for a second. There's like seven of us in the world today, I'm sure. But it's this idea that the mission of God and the work of Jesus is, is redemptive and it's redemptive for everything. It's not just redemptive for people and then one day he obliterates the planet, burns it to a crisp, and then redeploys a new planet in place of it. But rather that what's going on is there is this progressive unfolding of the kingdom in the world. And so we think about the story of the uh, the the leaven that is put into the dough and then it grows. And Jesus says, that's like the kingdom or the mustard seed that's super small, but you plant it in the ground, it becomes this giant bushy tree thing that the birds of the air can nest in, way larger than anticipated, right? There are these elements of Jesus's uh, descriptions of the kingdom where it is this onward, upward, progressive, transformative force in the world. And when God's people actually embrace the values of the kingdom and live the values of the kingdom, that's when the kingdom actually gets into the underbelly of culture and transforms it. So it's when we're doing Sermon on the Mountain, Sermon on the Plain stuff that 
that real transformation happens in society. And what undoes that kind of transformation is when society resorts to the non-kingdom oriented tools. And what's tragic is that in our culture, evangelical Christians are just as tempted to use worldly ways and worldly means to accomplish worldly goals in the name of Jesus as the world is. And therefore it undermines how the kingdom actually advances in the world. And so we use the same, we need economic strength and we need military force and we need security in our own homes. And we, you know, need to think real practically. We can't think like Jesus. Jesus was naive when he said all the things that he is in the Sermon on the Mount. And so we can't do that because you'll get run over in the real world. And, and so we then just kind of keep recycling the problems. Uh, we just do it in the name of Jesus, as opposed to we're trying to figure out what does Jesus tell us to do that we really believe will change the world if we do it. So back to them, post-millennialism, post-millennialism believes if we're doing that, that in essence, the world becomes more and more progressively reconciled to God, more and more transformed and changed. Individuals become changed, which then they operate like Jesus in the systems that they live. They go to work, they go to school, they play in their neighborhoods, they're involved in PTA and volunteerism and everything else, but they have this kingdom mindset and they're bringing that kingdom mindset into that portion of influence that they have. And that brings authentic transformation. It's when we're not grumbling and we're not complaining like Paul says. It's when we're actually trying to hasten the day of the coming of the Lord, like Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 3. It's where we're really living out that definition of love toward everybody we come across in our world. In fact, it's even something I said recently in one of the podcasts. When somebody messes up our order or messes up something in our world, we want them to be grateful that we were the person they messed up with because we are so compassionate, gracious, kind, and thoughtful in the process. We go, hey, everybody makes mistakes. I totally get it. We're all flawed. We're all human. We all need something greater than ourselves to be the anchor point in life. Like, Think about how often if you were just that chill person that was forgiving the people that screwed you over or screwed up with you, if you were that grace-based person, that would be like the lean-in moment. People would be like, why are you so like this? And you're like, oh, because I follow a guy who reconciliation and forgiveness were like the big ideas, right? Uh, especially a perfect God who was then incredibly merciful and compassionate and kind to incredibly sinful people. All the more, we should be exuding that kind of vibe in all that we do, right? And so this is the idea behind post-millennialism. Now, for a quick sidebar here, real quick, um, there are different forms of postmillennialism. There are forms that I think are incredibly toxic, destructive, and I think are the most earthly, worldly things imaginable, uh, where it's more this idea of what's called reconstructionism or dominion theology. This would be Christian nationalism, where it's like we need power and we need strength and we need force to basically enforce God's standards on society and the way we're going to bring about God's kingdom on earth is we basically either imprison or or execute everybody that doesn't agree. That's dominion to some degree. It's the idea that the Old Testament will be re-brought forth as the governing cue for society, and I am completely opposed to that version of it. Um, but then there are the positive versions of this, which is what's called revivalistic postmillennialism which is a belief that the gospel, and by the gospel, I mean that all-encompassing idea, not just that it saves souls, but rather the gospel that has victory over all things, the gospel that is reconciling all things, the gospel that touches the very fabric of Romans 8, where creation is yearning or longing, which here, it's interesting too, 
We can sometimes read that as like creation is just restless until we get our act together and things are brought back into order when Jesus comes again. But the idea is more creation is on the move. It's moving in the direction of where Jesus is drawing it to its future, right? That's the the labor pains, right? You're not thinking like, you know, labor pains just stink and that's all there is. No, there's this anticipation that the labor pains are because the baby is coming. So you're leaning into these pains because it's moving us in a positive direction, right? So in the same way then, we go, hey, I, I want to inhabit the space that advances a bigger gospel, a gospel that wants to speak into issues of, you know, whether there is reconciliation to be made in different people groups within our culture, the desire to see areas of mental illness uh, transformed and changed by the heart that God has for the world, those ideas, again, of the Sermon on the Mount or the characteristics of God. We want to be involved in those things because Jesus wants to reconcile all things. That's the whole idea behind these passages, right? In fact, the whole goal is that everything would be re-coalesced and connected to God. First Corinthians chapter 15 is all about the resurrection and how Jesus is the first resurrection. We're all waiting for a final resurrection and everything that's going on in between. And so from this, it says, for he must reign until he's put all of his enemies under his feet and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. And so the last enemy of Jesus is a concept. It's not even a being or a person or an entity. It's a concept. So part of the gospel is defeating this idea and concept, this toxin of death that affects everything, right? Death affects the tone that you experience at the DMV when you go to get your license renewed, right? Like that's the tone of death, man. And when you watch the news, you see the tone of death. When you watch warfare, you see the tone of death. When you see markets rise and fall, you're seeing the tone and influence of death in the world. And so the gospel is meant to restore all these things. It says, for God has put all things in subjection under the feet of Jesus, right? Until all things are finally subjected one day. Why does he do this? It says at the very end, so that God may be all in all, which I don't know if you thought about that, that God may be all in all, maybe to say it a little bit differently, that God would be fully present, realized, felt, and, and, and really driving the, the activities of all things in all ways, that God would be in all the things and systems and persons that are at play in his universe. Right? That's the, the coalescing that he is moving toward. That is the coalescing that the gospel is driving forth to see accomplished. Right, Even in Habakkuk, uh, see if I have it here. Yes, it says, One day the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Right, The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. Everything on the planet, all the systems, all the persons, all the stuff, all the actions and reactions and everything else, all of that is, is going to be connected to God. Therefore, is your gospel big enough? Because here's the thing. The gospel is a message of victory that Jesus has accomplished what is necessary to restore and redeem and recover the world, right? Not just a small percentage of human beings, but but everything. He wants to recover and restore everything. These are just the passages I'm reading. Sometimes we read all and we read over the top of all as though all is an all, but all is all, right? 
This is why even I love John 3, 16 and 17. For God so loved the world that he sent his son. Not to condemn condemn the world, it says in verse 17, but rather that the world would be saved through him. The world. Like, that's what he wants to save. And when we think about the world, you have to think about all the systems, the mechanisms, everything. Right? So then going back to these practical things that I've been thinking about over the last few weeks where people are like, you know, it's... It's just this singular problem or it's that singular problem. If we just pass this law, it would change everything. Across the boards, I'm hearing that in all kinds of different debates. Uh, you know, the abortion debate's the same thing. If we just pass this law, it solves everything. If we just get rid of this law, it solves everything. It doesn't solve everything. In fact, it may solve one thing and create five other problems, which is why we need the gospel to then bear its weight in all those other problems. And the gospel is a message of what? Restoration, reconciliation, victory over those forces of decay, of the absence of flourishing, of death's tone, and that we are the ambassadors, it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, to bring this message both in word and tone and action and disposition to bear in the world. So we want to think like gospel people on all the issues that are before us. How do we bring reconciliation and restoration to all these things that plague us? Not just sound bites or signing up on a political side or saying something that makes me feel good or posting a meme that targets my enemy in some social or political way. In fact, that's anti-gospel. That undermines all of this, right? Every time we're just poking at the other side of some issue, every time we're mad at the other side of some issue, any time that we're just like, their idea is stupid and this is the real true idea right here, so often it just undermines what the mission of the gospel is. And so we want to see ourselves as peddlers of reconciliation. We want to see ourselves as, I love the product so much, I bought the company, right? And we're kind of shelling out our love of what reconciliation entails, what restoration entails, what what bringing flourishing entails. So when we're looking at all the different topics we're dealing with, we need to not have reactions. We need to have thoughtful, prayerful responses of, well, how would I see this truly reconciled? Not just I have a, a, a soundbite, but but how does the gospel inform my, my response to this right now? How does the gospel remind me of what I'm meant to do? And by gospel, the gospel is, hey, good news. There are new values in play that can change the world if you actually do them. And those values are kingdom values. If you do those things, even though it's going to take great faith because it's going to feel like recklessness to do them, honestly, I, I look at the message of Jesus, I look at the things that he calls us to, and they are they're flatly stupid in the real world. But Jesus promises that's the only thing that will change the real world. See, I think we kind of go, I believe the Bible. It's the word of God. I'm going to trust him with everything. But I'm going to do stuff that insulates and protects me in the real world. You know, like, well, then the real world is going to stay as it is under the decay of death, under the, the sway of sinful impulses and agendas and protecting me, even if it's at the cost of somebody else, or protecting what I value, even if it devalues another human being in the process of that. This is where we have to work harder. And I'm not saying this is easy stuff at all. Just what I'm trying to say is we want to have a broader vision of the gospel. We want to see that Jesus came to, in fact, put all things under his feet so that the fullness of him would dwell all in all. That's what it says in Ephesians chapter one. Again, there's that all in all. Because as 2 Corinthians 5.19 says, he's reconciling the world to himself. The world. All things in the world. 
He's reconciling all these debates to himself. He's reconciling all of these conflicting political ideologies to himself. And we, because we have life, and we, because we're ambassadors, because we have been brought behind the curtain, we see the real mechanisms in place, we see what's really going on, we've been told our enemy is not Putin, and our enemy is not the left, and it's not the right, and it's not people from Central America trying to cross our border, and it's not up in Canada, and everything. Those are not our enemies. These people that are posting things on social media that drive you crazy, not your enemy, right? They're all victims. We're all victims of a system. But we have been brought behind the curtain in Jesus to see the world differently. And in seeing the world differently, we should be desperate to see flourishing touch all corners of our world. Again, monetary, political, social, educational, you name it. It touches everything. And I know this is a big ask to suddenly start looking at everything through that lens. But here's the problem. We as human beings are already looking with lenses at everything in our world. And we're constantly, this is the solution for this. And that's the solution for that. And just make a law for this, remove a law for that. And we think it's as simple as that. But there must be deeper kingdom values that are driving than how we make statements, support concepts, vote our conscience. I don't want us to vote conscience as much as I want us to vote kingdom, frankly. You know, it's just vote my conscience stuff. Uh, I don't fully trust my conscience, but I do trust kingdom, right? So so vote kingdom is the key, you know, and, and being involved in all the different areas, bringing Jesus to on that. If you work in a corporation or you run a business or you teach in a school, it, it should be constantly, how do I bring the gospel that reconciles all things as creation yearns how do I bring that into this particular context? Yes, part of the gospel saves souls. That's as a saved soul, I can think with a reconciliation mind, right? But the gospel is not just done with souls because the gospel is about God restoring the world to himself and all the things in it so that one day, man, the knowledge of the glory of God will be like how the waters cover the world, Right? And it'll be fresh water. We see that even in like Ezekiel and Zephaniah. And we see this in Revelation, like this idea that God is taking the salty toxic and turning it into fresh, teeming with life things. That is his mission for the world. And that is the mission that you and I get to live. And if we figure out how to live that in our little corner and space of the world, then all the more we will be effective everyday missionaries.